Hello everyone, I'm Michael Millerman and this is Millerman Talks. This is part two of a series of videos on the 2011 debate between Olavo de Carvalho and Alexander Dugan. In the last video, you heard their opening statements in response to the question of the place of the United States in the New World Order. Now this next segment of the debate begins with Dugan's response to de Carvalho's opening statement. If you remember, Carvalho began his response by suggesting that there can't be a debate, strictly speaking, between the two of them, um, in part because of the difference in their social and political roles or stations. De Carvalho presented himself as an independent philosopher and educator, not beholden to any powerful interests. And he contrasted that with Dugan, whom he presented as the architect of a grand ideology with the power of the Russian state behind it. De Carvalho illustrated the difference between their two positions with these two photographs. Now, Dugan fully accepts the Carvalho's emphasis on their different positions, but he interprets the difference symbolically. The Carvalho represents Western individualism, and Dugan represents Eurasian holism in his own telling. The debate itself reflects, therefore, two massive structures of different civilizations, different systems of value that confront each other through us. Our Russian Eurasian individuation, Dugan says, consists in the desire to manifest something more general than our individual features. So being a collective entity for me is rather an honor. The more holistic is my position, the better it is. In this context, he says, the Russian name Sabornost is even better to um, designate being a collective entity. So in invoking subordinist, Dugan stands in a tradition of Russian thinkers who have interpreted Russian collective life as a reflection of this feature of the Russian Orthodox um, Christian tradition, such as Vladimir Lasky did in the mystical theology of the Eastern Church. And you see here correlating subordinist conversations between Karl Barth and the Russian Orthodox tradition. So Dugan is invoking that concept when he speaks about the holism of Eurasian civilization. In his response, Dugan also states that he's closer to the Brazilian left with its Eurasian features than to de Carvalho's North American right traditionalism, asserting that he's in some ways more pro-Brazil than Carvalho himself, who resides in the U.S. and by implication shares U.S. cultural codes more than South American and Brazilian ones. Now, if you remember, de Carvalho had said that there are three major global projects in the world today besides Catholic and Protestant Christianity. Um, the Russian-Chinese one, the Western globalist project, and the Islamic project, corresponding to rule by secret service, rule by a financial elite, and rule by religious leaders and organizations, Islamic in particular in this case. So Dugan writes that these three alternatives represent three classical functions of a hierarchic traditional society, clerics, warriors, and merchants. In his books and essays, Dugan often talks about this theme, the tripartite structure of Indo-European societies, as described by Dumizet. And here he sides schematically with the military and religious functions of a hierarchical society over the economic ones, and suggests, therefore, that this implies an alliance of Russian-Chinese militarism with the Muslim Brotherhood against the American world order and the American way of life. Operating with the world map proposed by Professor Olavo de Carvalho, he writes, I admit that I would rather take conscious 
uh, I would rather take a conscious position in the Eurasian militarism camp, accompanied by great sympathy to the world of anti-Western Islamic movements, um, not sharing its theological positions, being an Orthodox Christian. Now, Dugan observes that in his opening statement, Carvalho did not explicitly side with any one alternative that he presented. So if he's a critic of all of them, if he's a critic of all of them, he should attack the U.S. project the hardest since it's currently the most powerful one and most deserving of critique. Um, but Dugan suggests that he avoids doing so because he lives in the United States and does not, so to speak, want to cut off the branch on which he sits. Um, now, another point that Dugan takes on from Carvalho's opening statement, uh, something I neglected to emphasize in the last video, is that De Carvalho doubts the relevance of classical geopolitics to understanding the current global situation. Dugan totally disagrees. Thinking in terms of sea power and land power, as classical geopolitics does, helps us make perfect sense of the geopolitical war of the U.S. against the Eurasian heartland, a theme Dugan has written about in many books, including Last War of the World Island, Geopolitics of Contemporary Russia, which I translated, you see here, if you're looking for something to read on this topic in English. Um, we're getting close to the end of Dugan's first reply. So here on the issue of the open society and Popper, if you remember De Carvalho had said, well, Popper isn't really a very big influence on the American scene. And Dugan's willing to grant that Popper may not be the central figure for American supporters of open society ideology. But the main point he emphasizes is not Popper in particular, though it's a useful model, the open and closed society, um, but rather the key issue is the individualism, the broadly acknowledged individualism of modern Western man against which there should be an alliance composed of holistic political and cultural movements. Now, finally, Dugan expresses serious misgivings about De Carvalho's strange claim that the globalists are allied with Russia and China and Islam against America. And he criticizes him for failing to pay any attention to the destructive effects of global Americanism in Russia and elsewhere. That brings us to the end of Dugan's response to Carvalho's opening statement. And now we turn to what Mr. De Carvalho has to say about what Dugan has just uh, stated, this series of claims. Here we enter into a phase of the debate where it will no longer be possible for me to give you more or less comprehensive summaries of the two positions as I've tried to do in the two videos so far. M Mr. De Carvalho's responses here become rather lengthy and the two figures grow increasingly impatient with one another. Nevertheless, as we proceed, we'll eventually be able to find serious and undecided philosophical disagreement, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves yet. This response occupies 30 pages. I repeat my disclaimer from the first video. My summary of this response is no substitute for actually reading it, and it just can't be exhaustive. So it's only meant to be a helpful guide and a shorthand overview. Um, that said, Olavo's response is structured into sections as follows. So these are the sections of their names, our respective missions in this debate, from argumentation to pure and simple gossip, the syndicate, why the syndicate wants socialism, whose side am I on, individualism and collectivism, the sentiment of communal solidarity in the USA, evil deeds compared, 
geopolitics and history, and the true historical agent behind Eurasianism. Now, I'm going to go through most of these briefly. So to begin, their respective missions. Dugan is a political agent aiming at victory. De Carvalho is a political scientist aiming at understanding. Dugan wants us to choose Russia and China in an alliance against the United States with Islam. Carvalho, De Carvalho rejects all three projects, but sees Russia-China as historically the deadliest by many magnitudes. So their respective missions are different. One of them is a political actor aimed at gaining adherence, and the other one is a political scientist trying to see the picture clearly. This takes us to the next theme, the next section, argument and gossip. So as a result, he says, Dugan is a propagandist, not a scholar. He uses all of the means of political propaganda. Manichaean simplification, defamatory labeling, perfidious insinuation, phony indignation, uh, the phony indignation of a culprit pretending to be a saint, in fact, and self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas Olavo is a scholar, and he says, all I can do is use the means of analytic clarification created by philosophy through the millennia, beginning with the very distinction between the discourses of agent and observer, so of political actor and political scientist, applying them to a multitude of facts gathered from the most various sources including those remote and poorly known to the public, and not from those of the popular media, which reflect the persuasive and manipulatory effort of one of the agents rather than a serious intent to apprehend reality. So what he's saying is he, De Carvalho, says that Dugan falsifies him by making him sound like a supporter of Western globalism, whereas he's opposed Western globalism vigorously at length. Dugan, in his view, is incoherent, and disingenuous when he insinuates that De Carvalho is more pro-American than pro-Brazilian. And in suggesting that Brazil has Eurasian features, Dugan betrays an unconscionable ignorance about the Brazilian situation. His allegation of being more pro-Brazilian than I, he writes, is only gossip, a puerile attempt to turn my compatriots against me, painting me as pro-American and anti-Brazilian. As a matter of fact, in the Brazilian big media, I've been practically the only columnist to protest against the globalist arrogance, which considers itself the owner of our country. So in short, this part of the reply says that Dugan is engaged in bad faith political propaganda and smears. In these sections, the Carvalho elaborates the claim that it's a mistake to identify the U.S. as the epicenter of the global elite or of globalism. The global elite is not even the best phrase to refer to the organized entity that meets periodically to ensure the unity of its plans in the continuity of their implementation, as he writes. A much better term is the syndicate. The syndicate is an organization of big capitalists and international bankers committed to establishing a worldwide socialist dictatorship. Section 4 outlines why the syndicate wants socialism. The basic argument is that socialism does not mean state ownership of the means of production, but rather increasing state control of the economy without making the state the direct legal proprietor of the means of production. An impossible outcome, according to de Carvalho's analysis. Syndicate socialism is a process of increasing alliances between big government and big capital. So again, it's not centered in the United States. It's a global phenomenon, which you can learn about in this book, The Syndicate, to see who exactly the families are, in which countries they're domiciled, and so on. 
And it's not gunning for free market capitalism, as Dugan suggests, but rather for socialism, a worldwide socialist dictatorship. Now, in the section titled, Whose Side Am I On?, Carvalho says the following. This does not mean, this the previous analysis, does not mean that I'm in favor of nothing or that I do not see positive forces acting in the world. Yet, precisely these forces, the positive forces he sees acting in the world, can't be counted among the main agents in dispute. They're marginal. They do not have, at least at the moment, any global plan or strategy that may neutralize or disarm the three monsters. So among them, he says, among, among the projects that he sees as positive forces are Christians, Protestant and Catholic Christians, um, the Jewish nation, and American conservative nationalism. But they're sentenced to death at the hands of the other three projects. So he writes, a worldwide united front of Christians, Jews, and American nationalists would not be a bad idea. But for now, I do not see any sign pointing in this direction. It seems that the representatives of the three communities are afraid of thinking about it, imaginarily anticipating the brutal reaction of their enemies. Here again, he emphasizes that the syndicate works together with those three monsters, the three um, powerful but bad global projects, to destroy the United States and the Christian tradition, for example, through Islamic invasion. Next, in the section on individualism and collectivism, section six, he criticizes Dugan's talk of individualism and collectivism, arguing that closer analysis shows the ways in which these two concepts are intertwined. Uh, and he says they both are used with an obvious polemical moral significance that we need to get behind in order to analyze them more rigorously and more accurately. So collectivists are often brutal sadists atop a hierarchy of command. And individualism, as respect and devotion for individual integrity, is the sole basis, sorry, not integrity, individualism as respect and devotion for individual dignity is the sole basis for genuine humanitarian solidarity. So there's a point at which individualism becomes genuine humanitarian solidarity and a point at which collectivism takes on an anti-human, brutal dimension. Continuing with the theme of solidarity, in sections 7 to 8, sorry, I see the slide is incomplete, but let me tell you the gist of the argument. So the argument is that U.S. individualism shows much greater communal solidarity than holistic Russia does. And the arguments he draws on are empirical. Americans adopt more orphan children, including from enemy countries, than all other peoples of the world combined. Half of the American population dedicates its time to work for free for hospitals, childcare centers, orphanages, prisons, etc. What other people he writes in the world has made active compassion an essential element of its style of existence? By contrast, holistic Russia and China, holistic in quotation marks, have murderous, treacherous histories. The governments of Russia and China have proposed to their peoples, he writes, rather to kill their peers than to help them. No charitable work in Russia or China ever had the dimension, the cost, the power and the social importance of the gulag, the secret police, tentacular organizations in charge of controlling all sectors of social life through oppression and terror. So again, he's trying to unmask Dugan's claim that American selfish individualism on one hand and true human community and solidarity in the holistic Eurasian space on the other hand, 
by looking at empirical arguments that show the opposite to be true. Now, the last point I have here labeled 10, but it combines sections 9 and 10. The last point I want to draw out from de Carvalho's response is this. In the ninth section of his response, he discusses what must be the case for an entity to be a historical agent. And here he's taking aim at Dugan's geopolitics uh, by saying that you've misunderstood what type of entity can be a historical agent. So neither nations nor social classes can be historical agents, for example, because they can't follow a coherent plan of action through two, three, or four generations as a historical agent must be able to do. The only entities, he says, that can be historical agents are the great universal religions, initiatory and esoteric organizations, royal and noble dynasties and similar entities, ideologically revolutionary movements and parties, and spiritual agents, god angels and demons. The historical agent at work in the Eurasian project, he claims, is the Russian Orthodox Church. All of the ideas that Professor Dugan has reflect an inner structural drama of the Orthodox Church, he claims. All the talk about geopolitical borders is only a strategic arrangement to try once again to fulfill the impossible dream of this grand and portentous historical agent, which in choosing to be an imperial religion, condemned herself to either remain imprisoned within national borders or to begin a world war. So for de Carvalho, Dugan's geopolitics is reducible to the nature of, to the influence of Russian orthodoxy on his mind, which shapes his holistic notion of a theocratic empire. Now you have before you a summary of Dugan's response to de Carvalho's opening statement and to Mr. de Carvalho's response to Dugan's response. And if you can't tell, the debate has become slightly caustic with accusations of cheap political propaganda and um, strange marginal ideas. And it doesn't get better in the sense of a friendly dispute in the next segment, which I will provide an overview of for you in the next video. This is Millerman Talks. Thank you very much for watching. Hope you liked the video. Share it, subscribe, like, comment, and talk to you again soon.